So we're going to talk today briefly out of Psalm 67. I, it's a short psalm. I knew that we wouldn't have much time, so it's in keeping with the length of time I knew I'd have that we chose a, a short one. But also because this psalm in particular really reflects the themes that uh, Bethany spoke of earlier. We are spending our summer in the Psalms. We began a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 1 to introduce the Psalms as a whole. Then last week we spent our time in Psalm 8, which proclaims to us the glory of God, most particularly shown in his care for his people. Psalm 67 is another psalm which declares to us the glory of God. But in particular, in Psalm 67, the glory of God is to be made known. That is to say, God made the world to display his glory, to display his power. Andy talked about that a bit ago today. To display his righteousness, his wisdom, his kindness, his grace. For all of eternity past, the Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead, were in perfect fellowship and knew each other in perfect harmony. But God decided to create, to flow outward, to to spill out his attributes onto created things. So when God made the Himalayas, he demonstrated his grandeur his beauty, and his power. When God designed the changing of the seasons, he demonstrated his wisdom. But when God made people, those upon whom he stamped his image, he primarily designed them so that they would understand his grace. God, knowing full well that those image bearers would reject him, would reject his glory, they would no longer be in awe of his grandeur or his beauty or his wisdom or his power or his grace. They would discard it for something inferior. But God purposed that that would not be the end of the story, but that instead these image bearers would experience the grace of his rescuing love. And what Israel came to know is that their God was a God of rescuing grace and that he had set his affections upon them that they might make that rescuing grace known to the world. And so Psalm 67 in our brief time together now demonstrates to us, proclaims to us, cries out to us, challenges us that God's grace is about making himself known to the world. And that truly we can say that we are to be the light that shines that grace all around the world. That will make more sense as we read and study it in a bit of detail. So Psalm 67, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, A song, this is God's word. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. 
Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. God has designed this world to display his glory. And in particular, as we've already said today, he has designed his people most particularly to display his glory. We are to be the light of the world. And in simple terms, simple explanation, simple summary, Psalm 67 is a psalm that is bookended by prayers for God to bless his people. But this this is not purposeless. This is not random. This has design. The psalmist helps Israel in their corporate praise to not only pray for blessing, but for blessing with a purpose. Verse 1, and then again in verses 6 through 7, are the bookends of the psalm. Prayers for blessing. But verses 2 through 5 demonstrate to us, proclaim to us, the purpose of the prayer for blessing. And that purpose is that God's grace may be tasted, not only by Israel, but by the entire globe. All image bearers all nations. God had set his affections upon Israel so that they might be a city set on a hill, that they might be salt and light in the midst of the darkness of a rebel race. God designed his people to be conduits of grace to the entire world. God delights in blessing his people because he loves them. We know him as father. If you are a father or a mother worth your salt, you like, you love, you delight in blessing your kids. You know the things that they like and you buy those things for them. You cook those things for them. You know what your children need and you bless them with those things. Your children need protection, you supply it. Your children need nutrition, you ensure it. Your children need development and education and a host of other things. And because you are a good father or a good mother, you do it. And though it's hard and though you don't always want to do it, you'll never stop. Because you're a good father or you're a good mother. How much more does the God who is never selfish, who is never weary, and who knows perfectly well what we need before we even vocalize it, delight in showing his grace to his people? And though God delights in showing his fatherly love to his people, there is design behind it. That is to say... God is always doing more than we think. 
And according to this psalm, at least one of the reasons why he delights in blessing us and why we can be sure that when we ask for blessing, he will answer that prayer is that he has grand design behind it. Because when we delight in him, he is glorified because he is the supplier. But when we delight in him, other people may come to glory in him as well. So again, in summary, God blesses his people not only because he delights in them, because he delights in making his name known everywhere among all peoples. And that, at least, is one major reason why he blesses us. So, a simple outline. The Lord showers his grace upon his people. Why does he do this? Because he loves to do it. And because he wants to make his name known to others who don't know him or treasure him. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. This is in keeping with Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 through 27, where Moses records, the Lord spoke to him, to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. It was the duty of the priests of Israel to declare to the people of Israel that they had a great God who loved them and desired to bless them. And so the psalmist draws on the words of Moses, but this is not a prayer that the priests pray over the people of Israel, all the people now take up that prayer. And so may we. May God be gracious to us. May he bless us or make us happy in him is the idea. And may he make his face to shine upon us. That is to say, may we tangibly know his favor. I encourage you to think about this for just a moment and maybe to participate in an interesting experiment. I don't know, two, three years ago, I decided that I was going to, whenever I was out in public, smile at people. I don't know how I came to this, but I just thought I would start doing it. And so when I go to the mall now or I go to a restaurant or whatever, I smile at people. And I, 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 I rarely now fail to do this because it's kind of become kind of a habit. It is so fascinating to watch people's responses. Probably initially I was doing it as a little bit of a smart aleck because that's just kind of who I am. But, but then I began to realize, like, this really works. And so I'll, I'll be, like, walking through the mall, and, you know, people avoid eye contact. Like, we're pretty nice in the Midwest. We're not as nice as Southerners, but we're relatively nice here. Like, up in the Northeast or whatever, like, they don't even look at you. Like, you don't even exist. But here in the Midwest, we're pretty nice. But even here, people don't look you in the eye. You ever notice that? Like, I'll be driving through my neighborhood, and somebody will be jogging, and, and I'll wave at them, and it's like they didn't even see you. you know, even if they did, they pretend like they don't. But what's really interesting is they, they do, 
when it really comes down to it, they glance at you because they're afraid, like, maybe you are wielding a knife and you'll stab them. How that's going to happen in the middle of Polaris or Easton, I don't know. But people are just scared all the time, so they don't look at you. But they really are. And so what I'll, what I'll do is I'll stare at them. <laughs> this is creepy and weird, I know. And, and they'll be, like, walking toward me, and I'll wait for that single moment where they give me that sort of peripheral vision look, and I'm smiling <laughs> at them. And, and they can't help it. They, occasionally, people will, like, run away because they're feeling really uncomfortable. But generally speaking, you know what they do? They smile back. If you walk up to somebody at Wendy's or Arby's or McDonald's, and I know none of you incredibly fit people will never eat at places like that, but I do. You walk in and you smile at a cashier, maybe uh, who's a single mom who's barely making it, and nobody ever is nice to her. They're just mad that their fries are cold, and you smile at her. It's amazing what that does for relationships. So try it. And don't do it to be creepy or weird or smart, but really try it. But it's interesting how, how smiles are a demonstration of, of how you really feel and how that elicits out of the person who sees it a response. It's one thing to know intellectually that God is good. It's another thing to feel the warmth of his smile. To remember that your three meals a day came from his hand. Because he smiles on you. And what should that elicit draw out of you? A response that he sees you and loves you. When you hold a child after it has been born and you wonder at the miracle of birth and you realize that that child is a gift from God, he is smiling on you. When your friends stand up for you or have your back, Or show kindness and mercy in forgiving you when you have failed them or offended them. God demonstrates through them as conduits of his grace that he sees you and he loves you. Smile at your kids. Smile at your friends. God is not so into himself and so withdrawn and insular that he fails to shower his tangible love the feel of the warmth of his grace upon us. And so the psalmist not only prays for grace and blessing, but they would feel it and know it. And then this word, which a lot of us have run across in our reading of the Psalms of the years, Selah. Scholars don't know what it means. Some scholars think that whenever that term was written into the Psalms, that there'd be these people with clashing symbols and they would bang them real quick, which would like draw attention to what had just been said. Um, Spurgeon thinks that Selah meant that the, the key changed, that there was like an amplification through the musical instruments that drew people's attention to the idea. The most common idea is that it meant to pause, to read, and then, and then wait a minute, maybe to reread and then to meditate. But whatever the case may be, this musical instruction is meant to draw attention to what has just been said. And that is that our only source of hope is our gracious God who smiles upon us. But then the purpose comes out. What's the purpose of all of this? We have found back in Genesis chapter 12 that God told Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And notice this last phrase, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
The Lord showers his grace upon his people, at least for this purpose, in order to draw the world into willing worship. As Israel experienced the favor of God, this was a proclamation to the world watching them that their God was the one true God. That the idols, the gods that they worshipped were false. That they could not satisfy. When Israel was released from the bondage of Egyptian captivity, through signs and wonders, God conquering armies that Israel could never have conquered on their own, God parting the waters of a mighty sea that would have engulfed them, God feeding them with bread from heaven and birds from the air and water from rocks. God allowing them to wander in the wilderness despite their rebellion and their sandals didn't wear out. God giving them a law, thundering down from the mountain, promising them covenantal loyalty. In these ways and so many more, Israel was unique. They understood his particular care. And through this, it was to be a light to the nations to draw them into worship. What does light do? Light exposes. Light reveals to darkened things, darkened minds. And God designed Israel to be a light, to expose and to reveal. And so verse 2 says to us, God wishes through Israel to make his way known on earth, his saving power to all nations. How much more the church. We who have been brought into fellowship with God through the sacrifice of his only son. The most heinous thing that ever happened, the darkest moment of human history was when the second person of the Trinity enrobed in human flesh was sacrificed on our behalf. But all at once, it was the most glorious moment in all of human history as well. When God brought his light into the darkness, crushing sin, overcoming the rebellion of his people. So how much more, my loved ones, Should we, the church, be those who proclaim the light of Christ, the saving power of God Almighty to all nations everywhere? The Lord showers his grace upon his people in order to draw them into willing worship. And through them, the rest of the world may know. We've already said today, But the reason missions exist is because worship doesn't. The most tragic thing that goes on around us is that people don't know God. And the only thing that can satisfy them, despite their scurrying around trying to find satisfaction in all kinds of things, is God. The constant scurrying of our neighbors to find satisfaction, joy, sustenance, and relief is an indication that they can't find it. That's why people go in debt. That's why 
people have affairs. That's why marriages are shattered and children have disillusioned relationships with their parents. These and many more reasons indicate to us that people want to be happy, but they can't figure it out. But we know. Because God has brought us back into fellowship with him. Where we can find peace and joy and rest and satisfaction. And all of this has been accomplished through the saving power brought to us through Jesus Christ. What does the psalmist want? That the peoples, verse 3, praise God. All the peoples praise God. And he echoes that again in verse 5. Let all the peoples everywhere praise you as we, the church, display to the world the glory of God who has blessed us and shown us his favor, particularly in Jesus. Verse 4, right in the middle of the psalm, the psalmist says, Let the nations be glad. They're not, but they can be. They can be if we will make him known. They can be if we will reflect the light that he shines upon us. They can be if the smile that we know from the Almighty, from our Father, is displayed and reflected to the world around us. As your neighbors see the blessings of God upon you, and that may not be cars, it may not be landscaping, it may not be a better job than your neighbor, but it might be your marriage. Your neighbor who has more than you may be the most unhappy person in the world. Husbands, as you love your wife as Christ loved the church, that is countercultural. Wives, as you respect your husbands as the church is to respect her Savior, that is not normal. It's weird. When you love your children faithfully, knowing when to say yes and when to say no, that's different. When you use your money, perhaps not for the same things that your neighbors do, but for other purposes, to bless those who desperately need it, to, to get the gospel the where it has not yet been proclaimed, that is different. That's weird. But the way that God shows his blessings upon you and then through you says something. So God blesses us that the nations may behold it. God blesses us that the nations may see it. That goes on around us in Ohio, but it is to go on all around the world. And the question then becomes, how are we using our resources that the nations might know? That they might be glad because they're not. That they might sing for joy because they don't. They long for equity. They long for guidance. Presidents and prime ministers can't provide that. Maybe you should tuck away Psalm 67 for in your back pocket for November, because our hope is not in political candidates of any party. Our hope is that one day God will make all things right. He will bring his righteousness to bear on the earth. And even if people don't know what's wrong, they know something is wrong. 
when 19 Yazidi girls in Syria are burned alive in iron cages because they refuse to be sex slaves of ISIS, they know something's wrong. When 20 people die in a nightclub in Orlando, they know something's wrong. This world isn't right. There's a longing for something better. Adam and Eve forfeited that. But the promise of a seed from the woman, from Eve, that would come and conquer the enemy and set all things right, we look forward to that. The nations long for renewal, even if they can't put their finger on it. But brothers and sisters, we know we have something to say. The Lord showers his grace upon his people in order to draw the world into willing worship. Verses 2 through 5, this is just spilling out of the nations. They can't help it. The psalm ends with this thought. We can trust him to always show particular care for his covenant people. Israel depended upon the seasons, the changing of the seasons, sun, the rain, for their life. They were an agrarian people. Whenever they had a good harvest, it was a reminder that God saw them. He blessed them. This is probably a psalm of thanksgiving at the end of the day. The people of Israel are thankful at harvest time for God's blessings upon them. But they knew there was purpose behind that. People were watching God's favor upon his people. And so we know from the beginning of the psalm that God showers his people with grace. We can pray for it. We can trust him to answer that prayer, to smile on us. But there's purpose, there's design that in blessing his people, that we are to make him known to the world. And as you've already said, because he has blessed us with the gospel, we are to most especially take that blessing to the nations. And if he did not spare his own son, as the apostle says in Romans 8, how will he not with him also give us all things? So we can trust him that he will bless us, verse 6. In verse 7, and that through this, through the blessing, we will be conduits of his gracious care to the world. Turn with me, if you don't mind, quickly as we close to Revelation 5. We have referenced this. Chapter in Revelation a number of times through the years, this is a a missional psalm. This is a psalm telling us what is to come. In particular, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, this is the Lamb, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. What's going on here is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has received the deed of the earth. He's earned it. And he has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And look in verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Israel 
only anticipated the coming of the Messiah in shadows. We, the church, know this in fullness. And if we have experienced the grace of the Lamb slain to ransom people for God, we have a message and we have a responsibility. We have a privilege to take the message of the glorious God, the one who alone can satisfy, to the world all around. In Revelation chapters 21 and 22, Verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By it, the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. The nations will walk, verse 24, and the kings of the earth will bow in submission. In chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Brothers and sisters, you and I and all peoples everywhere deserve the wrath of God. But God purposed to create us and to rescue us that we might taste his grace. And so he has showered it upon us. And we can pray knowing with full expectation that he will continue to bless us. But there is not just fatherly love and delight behind this. There is purpose. There is design that as he blesses us and in particular has blessed us in Christ, with redemptive salvation, that we will make this message known. Israel was to be a light, a conduit of God's grace to the nations. How much more we who have known the salvation of Jesus Christ can make him known to Lewis Center and Delaware and our country and Nepal and the whole world. That is why we exist as a church, to make God known, the all-satisfying God of creation and salvation to those who are seeking and not finding satisfaction. We have a song to sing. We have a message to tell. Let us do this here and everywhere. Let's pray.